Thanks, Jeremy. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. This morning, if you would, would you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1? It's on page 913, I believe, in the black Bibles around the room. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is now yours. Grab that, open it up, interact, feel uh, the, the, the everlasting Word of God. Uh, in your own hands. Interact with God's word to his church. We're in Galatians. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in crisis. False teachers have infiltrated this church and are teaching these young Christians that salvation will be accomplished through their sheer obedience plus Jesus's obedience false teaching, anti-gospel. The gospel is that we are justified in the sight of God alone, not by our works or effort or wisdom or any of that, but we are justified in the sight of Almighty God by the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We are saved by faith in Christ, nothing else. So that's what's happening in about A.D. 48 or 49 as he's writing to these young Christians in modern-day Turkey in this area of Galatia, as it was then. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 just to set up our context. We're going to be uh, really focusing in on verses 11 through 24, though, this morning. So read the Scriptures with me. This is written by Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul says, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is our portion for this morning. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, but when he, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, the apostle, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, the Lord Jesus' brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 
and they glorified God because of me. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to us this morning? Would you help us in our weakness? Would you help us understand what it means to find rest and renewal in the finished work of Jesus? We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to read to you again. Tune in with me a little bit here from a book called The Gospel Primer. This is like two very short paragraphs. But this is setting up where uh, this, is, uh, this is the background music to what I want going on in our heads and hearts this morning. It's about resting in Christ's righteousness. It says this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with God. A standing which Christ himself has accomplished and always maintains for me. I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task, I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. The gospel also reminds me that my righteous standing with God always holds firm, regardless of my performance, because my standing is based solely on the work of Jesus and not mine. On my worst days of sin and failure, the gospel encourages me with God's unrelenting grace toward me. And on my best days of victory and usefulness, the gospel keeps me relating to God solely on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and not my own. That is good news. That is really, really, really good news. The gospel is the power of God. Paul, when he wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he said that the gospel, he said, I'm, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel to Christians who are in Rome. He's not saying he's eager to preach the gospel to non-Christians here. He's saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, these Christians who are in Rome. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness, the rightness, the holiness of God is revealed from faith. That is our first moment of of recognizing that God is holy, but also for faith. Every subsequent moment that we need to believe that God is for us. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for our salvation, and the gospel is the power of God for our sanctification. Sanctification is a word that means becoming more and more pure, becoming more and more holy. So the gospel is for non-Christians to come into the family of God and regenerate us. And the gospel is for Christians to move us on our way to becoming more and more Christ-like. We never move away from the foundation of the gospel. The Bible speaks of God creating galaxies. The Bible speaks of God creating the earth and everything that inhabits it, creating people, creating animals and beasts, creating mountains, creating oceans, lands, but only three things are directly called the power of God in the scriptures. You know what they are? The cross, Jesus Christ himself, 
and the gospel itself, like Paul just wrote to this church in Rome. All three of them directly the epicenter of the gospel. Christ is the power of God, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Jesus himself is the power of God. The cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is the power of God. The gospel, Paul writes in Romans 1 that I just read to you, is the power of God for salvation. The reality of Jesus Christ, the man who is God, is the sum and center of God's displayed power in all of creation. The reality of Jesus Christ, the man who is God, is the sum and the center of God's displayed power in everything. Well, it's an amazing thing to behold North America's tallest mountain, Denali, which I got a little glimpse of this last week of this last week from Anchorage, Alaska. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to, to behold something that vast. It's a wonderful thing to behold humans who are created in the image of God. It's a more amazing thing, according to the Scriptures, that God Himself has come for you and I to give Himself for us. Not only to give us salvation, but also to promise us ongoing renewal and to firmly plant us forever as his adopted children into his family, never to leave us or forsake us. The gospel is the most powerful dynamic in all of existence. That God himself would recreate human hearts. That God himself would renew human hearts. That God himself would restore and reconcile human hearts to himself. Paul writes to these Galatians, these young Christians, that his gospel, the good news that he's consistently taught, it does not have its origins in the minds of men or women. I'd have you know, brothers, verse 11 of Galatians chapter 1, I'd have you know, brothers, that this gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The objective news of what has taken place in human history originated in the mind of God and it has taken place by the power of God. This is incredible. The good news that Jesus, that God himself would become a man, take on flesh, die in our place, rise again on the third day and justify us and promise us resurrection as well. It happened. Why? It happened because God willed it. And what does it mean that God willed that? It means that God wanted it to happen. He wanted this to happen. This is not plan B. This is not plan C. He is not just bearing with us. He is planning before the foundation of the world to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins and restore us to himself. He is pleased with this. He wants you. The person sitting in your seat, you. Everything that you have done, Everything that you have thought, currently think, or currently doing, will do, will think, he wants you. You. He's not asking you to clean your life up in order to come to him. He's saying, come to him, you who are weary and burdened, and he'll give you rest. Come to him, and he'll clean you up. And it will be progressive, and it will be incremental, and it will be awfully, oftentimes painfully slow. But he will finish the work that he began in us. And he will never leave us or forsake us. This is the good news of the gospel. Paul didn't make up this gospel that he was preaching. He says that he received it from Jesus himself. I just read that out of, uh, out of Galatians 1, 11 and 12. If you remember from our first week together in Galatians and in um, Acts chapter 9, the story of the apostle Paul's conversion. You'll remember that Jesus spoke to Paul and confronted Paul. 
literally knocked him off of his horse into the dust of the earth, blinded him, spoke to him. Paul, in that moment, in Acts chapter 9, submitted to him by saying, Who are you, Lord? To the person that he couldn't see who was speaking to him. Jesus said, Go into the city and I will tell you what you must suffer for my name. I'll tell you all that you are to do. Which means that Jesus planned to continue to reveal himself to the Apostle Paul. Jesus called out his enemy, forgave his enemy, and adopted his enemy into the family business as a transformed son of God. If you own a business or around business, run an organization, you just have a family, you know that you don't just readily invite your enemies into that inner place of trust. And that's exactly what all-powerful God was doing with the Apostle Paul, was inviting his enemy in, reconciling him, renewing and recreating his heart, adopting him into the family, into the family business, essentially saying that you are going to go and plant churches and proclaim my name across the globe, and they're going to be people in North America not even discovered yet by modern folks. And in 2019, they're going to be hearing your words and reading your words. This gospel that you have proclaimed 2,000 years later, it is so. Paul is 100% a recipient of God's sovereign grace. And so it is with everyone who follows Jesus as well. We know and we love God because he first knew, loved, and called us. It's interesting, though, to me, as, I, as I'm reading Galatians, Paul is like, he seems to be justifying himself here. Like, right out of the gates, verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Okay, Paul, little man syndrome, what's going on here? Like, you got to just throw out your title right out of the gate. It's going to be like that. Paul, an apostle. And then later on, he says, I'd have you know that this gospel preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he'll go on to tell a bit of his story. You heard of my former days in, in Judaism. It feels insecure to me, like he's trying to prove himself. Here's why he's saying these things to the Galatians. These Galatians, what they're doing is consenting to the leadership of some. If you see in chapter 1, verse 7, there are some who are aiming to distort the gospel among you. They're dis- these false teachers have infiltrated this Galatian church, these young churches, rather, And they're trying to distort it by saying that you must obey Moses' ceremonial law in order to be saved. You must keep the law, and then God will keep you. That's not the way the gospel works. Paul needs these young Christians to know that he is not fighting for his own glory in saying these things. What Paul is attempting to do is to turn them from false teaching, which minimizes and belittles ultimately the work of Jesus Christ, and rather turn them from that false teaching to the true teaching given by God himself to Paul and the other apostles, the only thing capable of really saving and sustaining them. Paul didn't make up the gospel that he was preaching and teaching. Jesus gave it to him by his own mouth, by his own bodily presence. Timothy Keller says Paul here isn't sharing his story for general inspiration. He's not sharing his story to these young Galatians to point them to himself, but rather he's using his own story to refute the claims of people who want to undermine his message. And his message points to the glory and the goodness of God. It minimizes man. It makes much of Jesus Christ. He wants the God of amazing grace to be on display through his gospel. And Paul will remind these Galatian Christians how he became a follower of Jesus, or maybe to say it a better way, how Jesus made Paul a follower of his. I would have you know, 
My former life in Judaism, listen up. You need to know that this gospel, you guys, that I have taught you, it's not born from a human's creative Hallmark card imagination. It's not a gospel. It's not the kind of good news that we would make up. The good news that we invent, that you and I run to and invent, it has our effort. It has our wisdom. It has our ingenious thinking at its center. What it has at its center is our kind of white-knuckling sweat equity. We've got to put something in here. The gospel that God gives us soothes our consciences by freeing us from resting on our accolades, our certifications, our wisdom, our epiphanies, our intellect, our discipline. The good news that we naturally run to, apart from God, like a dog to table scraps, celebrates us first and God second. But the good news that we celebrate that's shown to us in the scriptures, it comes to us from another world. Our real rescue doesn't come from inside of us. Our rescue comes from outside of us. It's exterior to us. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. He comes in the flesh and his name is Jesus Christ. It's not even helped out from within. We've been talking about this lately in our, in our community group, how there's this popular saying, and women, you're hearing a lot of this nowadays, and the saying goes like this, you are enough, you are enough, you are enough. You are enough. No, you're not. Why do you have to preach that to yourself if you're enough? Men, you're not enough either. None of us are. We need rescue exterior to us. God takes us as we are. And so in that sense, you are enough is true. He's not asking you to do anything. He's asking you to come to him with empty hands of faith. But in and of yourself, you're not enough. You need him. He is enough. That's what we've been talking about in our MC. And it's been really freeing and liberating to just say, I do need help. You know that feeling when you need help? You don't want to ask for help? Finally, you ask for help and you go, that's what we need to do spiritually as well. And that's what he's inviting us to. We don't, need in, we don't need to add anything to the finished work of Jesus. We don't have to be enough. Adopted children don't choose their parents. Their parents come to find them, come to choose them, and come to lovingly commit to them. And as the good news of Jesus Christ dawns on our hearts and begins to reshape us, rebuild us, shift our motivations, create a kind of joy and freedom and liberation in our own hearts, saturates us, it changes us from the inside out. Gospel power transforms our hearts. It transforms our motivations, our motives, our desires as gratitude begins to swell up within us and overwhelm our entitlement mentality with the reality of God's sovereign grace, which says this, God would have me? He wants me? He comes for me? He chooses me? He knows me to the bottom. He knows me better than I know me. He knows what I struggle with right now. He knows the thoughts that I think, the things that I do, the glances that I give to my loved ones, the way that I posture my body in intimidation around the people around me. He knows me to the core, and he'd have me? Yes. 
He wants you. He chooses you. He sets His saving love upon you. And He will have you. And if you will relent and come to Him with this, nothing, just receipt, like, give it to me, please. You're justified. And it's His work. And He gets the glory. And we don't need any of it. Because we get joy. From transformed hearts come transformed lives. And gospel power, in verses 13 through 17, you'll see that gospel power, this dawning of the good news of Jesus Christ on the human heart, it rewrites our stories. Is the gospel rewriting your story? Can you see the way the good news of Jesus, his reality, is rewriting your story? Can you see it? Paul reminds these Galatian Christians about his own story of redemption. I'm, I, I see two really evident reasons in the text. If you look at 13 through 17, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God, and I did so violently. I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by, my, by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Gospel power rewrites our stories. Paul wants to remind these Galatian Christians of his own story for a couple of reasons. First, he wants them to recall his own shocking turn from their violent enemy into a selfless parent in the faith. Like, reasonable arguments don't convert an enemy like Paul. He purposed, he, he, he was so zealous for the traditions of his father, the party of the Pharisees, this, uh, the, this ruling party in Judaism. He was so zealous that he would go and get letters from the chief priests and then he would travel to cities by horseback and by foot to find professing Jesus followers to shackle them and to haul them back to Jerusalem to be tried, tortured, imprisoned, and murdered. Human reason doesn't convert people like that. You don't argue a person like that into stopping what they're doing and starting to do something else. I'll give you, like, put it in human terms. Donald Trump becomes a very liberal Democrat. Do you see it? Barack Obama becomes a very, very conservative Republican. Like, they have heard all of the arguments. Likely, the Apostle Paul heard the pleading. He saw the blood. He felt the tears. And he hardened his heart against it, but God would have him. So he knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus. Supernatural power converts enemies like the Apostle Paul and turns their hearts and turns them into gospel proclaimers. Not just proclaimers, but believers. Only a supernatural encounter with the power of God is enough to turn an enemy like him into a trusted friend and father figure. And second, as he's saying, how I would have you know, brothers, brothers and sisters, those who are in the congregations of these churches, of my former life and how God converted me, he also wants them just by proxy to think about their own stories of salvation and their own stories of ongoing renewal 
as they look to the real Jesus to save and to sanctify them. Whenever the apostles talk about uh, faith in Christ, whenever they talk about new life in Christ, they do so with renovation language. Like the language is, it's, it's pretty stark. They'll say, the old man has gone, the new man or woman has come. You must be born again. You must put to death the deeds of the flesh. The old man is buried and raised to new life with Christ. They say things like, we live and we walk in newness of life. They're talking about a total overhaul of who we are that starts in the epicenter of who a person is. The heart, the center of our mind, our will, our desires and motivations. And then when that begins to shift, then the things that we do with our hands, our feet, our mouths, the looks that we give with our eyes, then those things start to change. With the Holy Spirit's indwelling as he's renewing our hearts, you and I, we're still us. You're still you. But we're a radically different version of us. I would argue better. Like when Chip and Joanna get their hands on an old house. right? And, and what comes as a result? Something that is livable. How much more the human life when God gets his hands on us and works his way into our hearts and begins to renew us, real change comes. Paul was a committed Pharisee. He was a law keeper. He was so dedicated to obeying the law of God and knowing his Old Testament by heart, his own peers could not hang with him. You've seen in, um, in like business journals, you've probably seen like 20 under 30 or top 20 under 40 years old, you know, business leaders and a community. Like we're in a community of 100,000 people or so, you know, area of 100,000 people. It's it's a pretty big deal if somebody gets an accolade like that and gets a little write-up about your business or your endeavors or whatever it is that you're leading. Paul was like top 20 under 30 in all of Israel in the entire nation. So extremely zealous, he would say, he was for the, for the, the, the traditions of his fathers. He had zeal for his career. He was blameless, according to himself. Not only that... But his blamelessness, according to the law, drove him to persecute Jesus' church with such fury that he didn't just want to, like, cripple it. He wanted to destroy it. He didn't want to just maim it so it walked with a, a limp. He wanted to eradicate it. He wanted to wipe it from the face of the earth, existence, human memory. In Paul's view, the church had no right to life, none whatsoever. If you want to read more about this, you can read Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And Paul will kind of give his biography again, just about how awesome he was in the flesh. He's qualified to the max. And here's where it hits home for us. What drives this kind of ambition in a person? What drives this kind of ambition in us? Maybe we're not like religiously zealous to the to the, to the hilt, like the Apostle Paul is. But what is it that you are ambitious for? What is it that drives your life? What is it that drives you? And here's a question that helps it to, to kind of hit home too. Does, does your ambi- the things that you are ambitious for, whether it's raising children or climbing a corporate ladder or, or, or getting good grades in school or finding a spouse or staying with your spouse or whatever it is that you're ambitious for, maybe those are just like low-hanging fruit, maybe it's something totally different in your life, does it pay off? 
Does your ambition pay off? Here's what I mean by that. Does it soothe your conscience? When you get the thing that you are ambitious for, maybe it's a change in job, maybe it's money in the bank, maybe it's retirement, maybe it's owning your home outright, whatever it might be, whatever you're ambitious for, whatever is driving you, when you get it, do you think that it will pay off for a very reasonable amount of time? The reality about the things that I am ambitious for on a, on a human level, is there a lot like the shot in the knee? You know, when you've got knee pain and you go to the doctor and they give you the shot, what does the shot do? Does it cure your knee pain? No. Masks it. It just makes it so you can walk. But the problem, the root of the problem is still there. But the gospel, when it comes in, it begins to rewrite our hearts and our stories. It begins to work at the root. The things that you are ambitious for, do they pay off? Does it soothe your conscience? If you get these things, will it soothe your soul? I'd venture to say that every single person in this room is insecure. It's a bold statement, Jared. I'm going to tell you right now that the guy with the microphone strapped to his face talking to you is incredibly insecure. Almost every decision that I make in my life you can trace it to, to insecurity being a portion of what's going on in my head and heart as I make decisions, spend money, don't spend money, make, try to make decisions that are honoring to this church family. Every one of us defaults to trying to prove ourselves in some way. Every single one of us defaults to trying to prove ourselves. And we're not any different, male to female, young to old. We all find ourselves trying to prove ourselves in some way. We work our fingers to the bone or we give up on whatever it is that we're in pursuit of because it's no use. Because there's this nagging sense in us that we are incomplete, that we are broken, that we are unacceptable, that we are tainted goods. And we want desperately to be right. We want desperately to be whole. You could say we want righteousness. And it eludes us. What else explains your defensiveness in conflict? Other than a desire to want to prove yourself. What else explains your overwork at your job? Your overwork climbing the ladder? Your inability to turn it off. My inability to turn it off. What explains your overwork in school as you're fretting over assignments? You're, 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 you're crossing every T, dotting every I, thinking about it on your bed, wringing your hands. What else explains that than a desire deep down in you to prove yourself? What explains your theological arrogance that looks down your nose at people that are less serious about God's glory or the Bible than you are? What else explains your harshness towards those people who hold different theological positions than you do? What else explains your lack of grace on those who have lost themselves to addiction? Or your harshness toward those who have just made a really dumb decision lately? And we all do. And we all have. A secure person is not harsh. A secure person is not judgmental. A secure person 
is not defensive. A secure person is not arrogant. A secure person is not ungracious. And all of us are these things. Very often, which says that we're insecure in so many ways. And Jesus Christ, the man who is God, was none of these things. The most secure person to ever live, lived for us, gave himself in our place to purchase for us redemption and oneness and reconciliation with God. What is it that unsettles your conscience? What is it that you are trying, you are eking it out, you are white knuckling it, you are trying just not to let your guard down at all? all costs. What is it? Will you silence yourself for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you? What is he naming? He's working in all of us. He's speaking to all of us right now. What is it? You're getting squirmy. Stop looking at me, Jared. Keep talking. What's he naming? The Galatians' consciences, they're not quiet. Maybe they expected faith in Christ alone to be a quick fix for them, but because gospel renewal, it doesn't work quickly. Gospel renewal, the rewriting of our stories, it works incrementally and often painfully slow. Click, click, click. We want it fast. Come on, Lord, just change me. Make me patient. It's not how gospel renewal works. Think about a sapling planted by a river's edge. How long does it take to grow in girth like this? Years and storms and droughts and passerbys. Knives in their hands, carving their initials in the tree. The Galatians' consciences, they're not quiet. They expected this gospel renewal to be a quick fix. And because it wasn't, they were stuck in the mud. They deserted God by deserting the gospel. And they moved on to a new teaching that aimed at soothing their troubled consciences. And many of us, most of us in this room, we have consciences that are troubled. If I could just be, or if I could just do, or if I could just stop. How do Jesus' people respond to those things? Do we respond with more frenzied activity, continuing to just white-knuckle it? Or is he inviting us to stop the frenzied activity and the madness that's trying to seize control of our lives and soothe our own consciences by our own hands and instead set our minds on the cross of Christ and the power of God to settle and to soothe our troubled hearts? Paul gives us here in this text a quick look at his own method but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pre- pleased to reveal his son to me. See that? Look at how zealous I was. You can almost feel like I persecuted the church of, of God violently. You can almost feel like that, that, that foreboding sense of regret creep in. And then mid-sentence he uses this word but just like he does in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses in Ephesians chapter 2. But God made us alive together with Christ. You see that same kind of phraseology happen right here in this text. I persecuted them violently. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him to the Gentiles. And da-da-da-da-da, here's what I did. 
Here's what happened. You can see Paul soothing his own heart and soul here with the cross of Christ, with the reality that God wants him. For Paul, everything comes back to the gospel. How to become an apostle in the first place. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, by his own hands, by his own effort. No, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Jesus Christ, God the Father, raised Jesus from the dead. He is the one who made Paul an apostle. Look at verse 4. How do the Galatians receive grace and peace in the first place? Grace that takes care of their sin, the unmerited favor of God, and peace that settles their, their, that soothes their unsettled consciousness. How do they receive grace and peace? Through Jesus who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. And Galatians 1.4. How did God treat Paul according to his folly? Look at verse 15. He called Paul in grace and he gave him mercy. And he didn't only call him in grace and give him mercy, but he gave Paul a ministry of proclaiming the gospel to Jews, to non-Jews, gathering people around this gospel, seeing it planted deep in their hearts, gathering other people around one another to form communities of faith in Christ alone, which we call churches. And he continued this work. And the ministry that God gave to Paul was a pleasure for God to give him. Do you see that word pleased in there? But when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, things happen by the will of God. Why? Because God wants them to happen. When God who was pleased to reveal his son to me means that God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. And he's pleased to reveal the real Jesus to you and I as well. I think God was pleased for several reasons. One, Paul experienced gospel power that transformed his heart and caused him to love God and caused him to love giving God glory. But also, Gentiles like the Galatians would hear and receive the gospel too, also loving God and giving him glory. And then Jews from Judea heard Paul's story and gave God glory. Look down at verse 23. In Judea, he was unknown in verse 22 to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Those are Jewish churches from the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Gospel power rewrites our stories. And like it gave Paul much to think about, it gives us all kinds of things to think about. Thinking about our own lives and developing awareness of the myriad ways the gospel reaches into us and heal our hearts is something for us worth pursuing. And so I want to ask you, churches, a way of application to do this, to think about your own story and to write Jesus Christ into the center of it. God himself has written you into the greatest true story ever told. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. He became that for us. He's written us into his story. I recently met a person named Greg who's a, um, a sommelier, master winemaker in uh, Walla Walla, and he was telling us uh, his story of uh, how he met this church planter that we were visiting. And, um, and, and Greg was doing this event in Seattle called Taste Seattle that was like a, a major like winemaking exposure kind of expo thing. And, uh, and he's on his own. He has a cellar, um, cellars and a vineyard. And um, he was looking at his bio on his website, and he was like, I don't have the fact that I'm a Christian in my bio anywhere. He was going to Mars Hill Church at that time in Seattle. And so he gets onto his, uh, on, onto his website, and he changes two lines. Greg is a Christian and is part of Mars Hill Church, or is a follower of Christ and is part of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And, uh, and somebody 
that day at the expo was on his website, saw his bio, saw that he was in Walla Walla, came up and found him and said, hey, my friend Brian is planting a church and moving his family down to Walla Walla in a couple of weeks. You guys should connect. Greg said, great. He was really busy talking to other people. He gave this person a card, kind of like whatever. This person gave, uh, sent Brian a text message. Brian called Greg the very next day, spoke to Brian. They said, we should meet up sometime. They met up as soon as Brian uh, came to town. And Greg said, well, where are you guys going to meet? Where are you going to start your church up? And Brian's like, I don't know. I don't have any idea yet. I'm just trying to meet people and figure this all out. Greg goes, well, why don't you use my tasting room? And so Mission Church in Walla Walla started in Gramercy Cellar's tasting room. And then we're eating good drink, or we're drinking good drink, and we're uh, having good, eating good food this, a couple of weeks ago in Walla Walla together, enjoying each other's company. Greg is telling this story, and we are the recipients of this grace too. Brian Hope was part of our assessment team with Acts 29. And you just start to see like the story come together. And, and Greg's simple act of obedience here was just changing in his bio, just writing in his website bio, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm a part of a local church. You never know how God is going to work through your direct, you, you directly correlating your life to the risen Christ. You don't have to be a weirdo about it. You've got enough of that, right? Like, just tell people that you're a follower of Jesus and see what they do with it. And if it gets real awkward, then change the conversation. But keep coming. You never know. In a time of trouble, I need to talk. Will you pray for me? Something just went down in my life. And I know you're a Christian. I know you talk to God. That just opens another door. Gospel power, it also reconciles enemies and glorifies Christ. And I'm going to, there's so many sermons to preach out of this text. I'm sorry. I want to just keep going, but I'm not going to. I'm going to land the plane. Here is what, here, here, is, here is what happens at the end of this passage right here. Gospel power, it reconciles enemies and it glorifies the risen Christ. Why do I say that? Because Paul talks here about three, after three years of going into these regions and just being literally discipled by the risen Christ. I know it's hard for us to imagine. It's supernatural and kind of like not what we're used to thinking about in this day and age. Paul is saying after three years being discipled by Christ alone and revealing his gospel to me, I went up to Jerusalem, the epicenter of Christianity, the very place where Jesus was crucified and rose again and where the early church started, he goes up there to visit this guy named Cephas, also known as Peter. And he also visits a person named James, who is the Lord Jesus's literal blood brother. He goes up there and he stays in their house for two weeks with them or, or with them for two weeks. What's so odd about this is that Paul is the chief enemy of the church. He is the guy leading the charge to violently destroy it. He's just told us about that in his bio. And then he goes up to Jerusalem to confer with Peter's or with Jesus's chief apostle, Peter. And not only his chief apostle, but his own brother who now worships him because he knows that Jesus is God. And these guys spend two weeks together. And Peter and James give him a bed, give him shelter, give him food, give him fellowship, extend to him a hand of fellowship and camaraderie, affirming his message. They didn't teach him. They didn't give him the gospel. He just said, here's what I'm preaching. And they said, it's the same thing we're preaching. Go in peace, brother, from enemy to brother and friend. 
So how do we wrestle, how, how do we kind of wrestle resting in the good news of Jesus down into our own hearts. I want to give you just one really simple exercise that we have been practicing in our missional community. It's the simple memorization of Scripture. Like, how are you, how in the world are you going to, how are you going to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? How are you going to stop all the frenzied activity and just proclaim to yourself all that Jesus has done for you? It's by knowing objectively what the Word says. Now, if you're writing or if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you uh, five, loca- five verses quick to just jot down shorthand. I was going to throw them up on the screen, but this all, this, the end of this came together this morning, and we were frenzied this morning getting set up, and I couldn't get it, a slide together. Write down Romans, or R-O-M, 1, 16, and 17. Write down Romans 5. One through two. Write down Galatians one, three, and four. Write down one John one nine. Write down one Peter two twenty four. I'm gonna give them to you again. Romans one, sixteen and seventeen. Romans 5, 1 through 2, Galatians 1, 3 through 4, 1 John 1, 9, 1 Peter 2, 24. Memorize all five of those? No. Pick one. What speaks to you? Just look them up this afternoon. Take time to open your, your Bible or open your app and pick one that speaks to you And figure out, how am I going to get the content of that into my own heart so that when I begin to just work my fingers to the bone or give up because it's no use, I want the Holy Spirit to remind me of that truth, that objective truth. The way that we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ starts with knowing what he says to us, what he has done. Father, help us. Help us find rest. Help us to not confuse rest and laziness. Resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ is not being lazy. We sleep because we need our power and our strength restored. Sleeping is not being lazy. Being lazy is being unwilling to work. We don't work for approval. We work from approval. And it's a radical shift. Help us to rest in the enduring truth that it is finished. Help us to resist trying to prove ourselves through arguments and through work, through defensiveness, through guardedness. Help us to love one another and be gentle with one another as we all rethink our lives and process how this has worked out in reality. We're all in such different places in life. And you know our frame. You know right where we're at, where we're at right now. May this church be a church who, this people, a church is a people. May your people, the people of all of life and beyond, be a people who are zealous for what is true and are zealous to live in understanding ways with one another. 
to be zealous to give an embrace and to not try to fix every problem with words. To be zealous to be in each other's presence, even if we don't say a word. Help us. Make your glory resound through this church and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.